what's up, 9 o'clock? How we doing this morning? Hey, you braved the Southern California rain, and you made it. So special spiritual kudos to you. Hey, it is uh, good to be with you once again. If you are here for the very first time, special welcome to you. Welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. We're excited that you're spending this service time with us. Uh, my name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to lead us in our time of teaching. And so to get ready for that, inside your programs you got on your way in, there is a green and white message note sheet. That acts as a great tool to be able to follow along with this time of teaching. It's also a great tool. We provide some blank white space there for you to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit might be prompting you specifically to remember. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and we're going to dive right into our time. Jesus, it's always such a joy to gather as your saints, to gather as family, to gather as spiritual community. And as we were singing and declaring these songs earlier, one thing that just keeps coming to my mind is how much more I want to experience you. And so on behalf of our church, on behalf of my family, that is my prayer, that as we go into this time where we open up your word, which is living and active, our prayer is to experience more of who you are, Jesus. Our prayers experience more of your power, more of your truth, more of your authority, more of your leading, more of your transformation, Jesus. We don't want to remain as we are. We want to grow to be more and more like you. And for that to happen, we need to experience more of you in our daily lives. And so I pray again as we open up your word that you open our eyes that you remove filters, that you calm our hearts, that any barrier that would keep us from seeing you, Jesus our King, would be shattered by the Holy Spirit. As I often pray, I pray that I as the communicator would become much less this morning, and I pray that you, our King and the Christ, becomes much, much more. Jesus, it's in your powerful name that we all say, amen. And so this morning, we're going to be continuing the series that we've been in for the last four or five weeks or so called Metamorphosis Face-to-Face. And if you're here for the very first time, this is a series that's based on a letter in the second half of our Bible, we call that the New Testament, that was written by a key leader in the early movement of Jesus, a man that goes by the name of the Apostle Paul. Now, in this letter, Paul is writing to a group of Christ followers that about five years prior, he himself had led to the Lord, and he's writing to these Christ followers who live in and around a major Roman city that is located in what today would be southern Greece, the city of Corinth. Now, the heart behind this series is that throughout Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he describes God's vision for all of his people, and to describe that vision, he often comes back to the Greek word metamorphal which is where we get our English word of metamorphosis. And so a metamorphosis is a gradual yet a profound change. And Paul keeps coming back to this word to describe that is our journey as Christ followers. He describes it that when we give our lives to Jesus, when we proclaim him as king, we enter into a face 
to face relationship with Jesus. And through that relationship, as we learn to listen and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we undergo a supernatural transformation, a metamorphosis in which we go from who we used to be and which we become someone that is more and more like the person of Jesus. And so to recap last week briefly, because last week was a very pivotal week in this series, as Michael led us in this letter, Paul began to talk about hard times. And Paul, in essence, was talking to us, was writing to all of us to say that hard times are, is not proof that God isn't with us, but often hard times is proof that God is with us. Now, if you missed that message or you would love a refresher, I'd highly encourage you to jump on our YouTube channel, to download the free Rocky Peak app and watch it there, because again, that was a pivotal message for us going forward. And why that was such a key part of Paul's letter is because as we've been talking about, first of all, the church of Corinth is a mess. It is an absolute mess, and if I'm honest, it makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> and not because I'm better in any way, but because often as a human being, I'm a mess. Often we're a mess, aren't we? And it's a great reminder that in the Bible, we deal with one perfect Jesus and a bunch of flawed people. And so through this, one of the biggest issues that's creating the messiness at the Church of Corinth is the fact that there are people in groups that are challenging the authority and leadership of the Apostle Paul. They are challenging his, uh, his, his, uh, his status as an apostle. They're saying, is he really sent by God? Does he actually speak for God? And one of the key reasons why they're challenging him is because Paul's life was often a mess. See, they're coming from a culture, and hear me clearly on this, the more time I spend in 2 Corinthians, the more I realize that their culture is very similar to our culture today. They're coming from a culture in which to be good, right, you need to be a winner. You need to be better than other people. You need to be in power. You need to be successful. You need to have the corner office and the boat. You need to be a winner. And by their cultural standards, Paul was not a winner. He was often persecuted. He was often jailed. He often had to work side jobs because he didn't have money and didn't have much to eat. Paul was not this big, powerful force. And so that didn't click with their cultural standards because they went, no, no, no. If you're a person of speaking for God, you should be a winner because that's what makes sense. And so this morning, as we continue in our letter, we're going to see that Paul is going to begin his defense of himself. And specifically, he's going to refer, he's going to, he's going to deal with a, with a very specific argument made against them that Paul is dishonest and intentionally misleading the church at Corinth. And so if you're following along in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Paul's Defense. And if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be going to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to be starting in verse 12, but before we dive in, what we need to do is we need to set up a little bit of context. And so Paul is addressing a very specific issue. Now, he is writing to the church of Corinth, and in his writing, he makes a certain assumption that they know what he's talking about, which, as the original audience, they did. And so Paul doesn't flesh out the issue at hand. And so for us to really understand what's going on, we need to pause and talk about the context going on. And so the charge of Paul being dishonest at this point in the letter is because he had stated travel plans and his plans had changed. Now I'm just going to do a very brief setup of this. Next week, Paul is going to continue talking about this issue and Michael's going to dive deeper into what changed in Paul's plans. But the very short version is this, that Paul was heading to Macedonia and he stopped in to visit Corinth and that visit went badly. It went way very badly. There was a major crisis. There was major opposition to Paul. There was major division going on. In fact, throughout the letter, when he refers to that visit, he refers to it as the painful visit. And so what ended up happening was Paul retreated from Corinth. Sometimes when there's a crisis happening, you need a moment to regroup, don't you? And so Paul retreats from Corinth with the stated intention that he will come back. And so as Paul retreats, he goes to prayer. He looks to regroup. He's looking for the Lord to counsel as he considers what is the best way to deal with this crisis? Because Paul's heart is what is best for the life of the church. And it's in that process that Paul is led to not return to Corinth, but instead to write a letter, a strong letter. He calls it a painful letter in which he confronts and deals with the situation. Now, that is the brief snapshot. Again, Michael next week is going to go deeper into that because there's a lot more there. Paul talks about that he wrote the strong letter and he almost regretted sending it. He was worried, is this going to drop another bomb on this church? But for our purposes today, it's the fact that he had said he would return and instead he wrote a letter. His plans changed and his enemies jumped on that to go, see, Paul can't be trusted. See, Paul is deceiving us. He is not an apostle. He doesn't care about Jesus. He doesn't care about us as a church. He's just all about himself. And so Paul is going to confront these accusations. But one thing that's beautiful about the Apostle Paul is that he often is keeping his mind, he's keeping himself focused on God's big picture. And as Paul confronts these accusations, he's using this as an opportunity to address one of the root problems that the church at Corinth faces. And there on your note sheet, I have it so that we can be clear going into this, your fill-in is this, the root issue is a wrong view of Jesus. The root issue was a wrong view of Jesus. Because Michael talked about this last week, that if you think about the life of the Apostle Paul, what made him, quote, a loser in their eyes, and you compare that to the life of Jesus, it's remarkable how much they resemble each other, don't they? 
And so for the church at Corinth, what had happened is they had a filtered, distorted view of Jesus. And so because they had a different view of Jesus, they couldn't see Jesus reflected in the life of Paul because that's not the Jesus they were looking for. And this is the key issue. See, at Rocky Peak, we often use the language of filters. And what we say is that often when it comes to how we see Jesus, we often see Jesus through a series of filters which distorts the original image. Now, these filters come from a variety of different places. They can come from cultural standards or expectations. They can come from our own religious backgrounds and upbringing. They can come from our own experiences of successes or hurts. They can come from our own or cultural preferences. But again, what happens when we filter Jesus is that we now distort the image and we see a Jesus of our own making. And so what we need regularly is the Holy Spirit to shatter these filters for us to see the true Jesus, the unfiltered Jesus. And so for Paul, as he goes into his defense, his concern is less about clearing his name and his concern is far more about them not missing the real Jesus. And so with that, now we can dive in and follow Paul's train of thought. And so starting at verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 1, and again, get your pens handy, your highlight function ready, because we're going to mark this passage up. Verse 12, now this is our boast. Now would you underline or highlight that word boast? In fact, in these opening verses, that word is going to pop up a few more times. Would you underline or highlight it everywhere you see it? Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. Would you underline those words because they're key? Integrity and sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace, God's undeserved gift. His power to forgive is also his power to transform. Now let's stop right there. And as Paul begins his defense, so to speak, the very first thing he does is he draws focus to who the unfiltered Jesus is. And in essence, he's saying, my life is a reflection of who Jesus is. And so he begins with a strong word, the word boast. Now, as we think of boast, we often understand that a boast is having significant confidence. And that's the way that he's using this. But say the word boast, he is saying significant confidence. But he makes a key distinction in how he uses it. Often, we think of boast associated with vanity and ego, don't we? And often, we think of it that way because the reason we're boasting is ourselves. We're boasting in our own abilities and our own successes and our own intelligence, whatever that may be. But what Paul is saying is that his boast is not in himself, but his boast, his confidence is in the character and actions of Jesus himself. And he goes on to describe that he is being transformed 
transformed by that Jesus to reflect that Jesus. And that leads us to those next words I had you underline, integrity and sincerity. And the power of these words honestly gets lost in English because we're familiar with those words, right? And we would read that and go, well, Paul is saying that he's a pretty decent human being, right? That he's trustworthy, that you can believe him. But actually in the Greek, these words have nothing to do with Paul and everything to do with Jesus because these words are pointing back to who God is. And so the first word integrity, the root in the Greek is hagaotes, and that word means holiness. That is who Jesus is. And so Paul is calling attention, that is who Jesus is, and that is who he is transforming me to be. I cannot be holy unless for the work of Jesus. And then the word sincerity in the Greek, the root of it is elikrinia, and that word means purity. And again, he's saying that is who Jesus is and that is who he is transforming me to be. And so his point when it comes to how the Corinthians see Jesus is focus on the right things. You're seeing Jesus through filters and that's why you don't see him reflected in my life. This is who God is. This is the Jesus I've been preaching to you and he is transforming me to be a reflection of him. And so as he begins that, he continues, and for us we continue in verse 13, for we do not write anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast, there it is again, of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so again, what Paul is saying is that his whole mission has been to point and describe the unfiltered Jesus. That is the gospel that he presented. He has not hidden the truth, nor has he been a fake religious leader that lords it over people, that I'm gonna, only I am worthy enough of having this. And then he talks about boasting because he says, we have experienced, he and his team have experienced the risen Jesus, and that Jesus is true transforming us. We are not perfect, but you can boast, have confidence that the risen Jesus is transforming us. And if you see that, then we can have confidence that the same unfiltered Jesus is transforming you as well. And so now that he's kind of set the foundation, next Paul is going to address the specific charge of dishonesty against him. And so verse 15, because I was confident of this, confident of who Jesus is and who Jesus is transforming him to be, because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you may benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. He did that visit. That was the painful visit. And to come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send me on my way to Judea. So that's the visit that didn't happen, the plan that changed. Was I fickle when I intended to do this or do I make my plans in a worldly manner? Would you under line or highlight that phrase, worldly manner. In essence, that's saying wisdom apart from God in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no. 
So again, Paul's jumping right into the heat of this. He's basically calling it out and going, you think I'm a liar. You think I'm going to say whatever I need to say to appease you when really I just care about, I just care about my own benefit, my own good. And so he continues in verse 18, but as surely as God is faithful, again, his defense is to point to who Jesus really is. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not Yes and no. Verse 19, for the Son of God, would you underline that? That's key. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would you underline the word Christ? For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, that's Paul's team, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. And so one of the first things that Paul does is, again, he paints a picture of who Jesus really is. And I had you underline these titles, the Son of God, the Christ. Those are titles of Jesus' kingship. Those are titles of Jesus' authority. Those are titles that Jesus is who we submit to, and he's saying that the king is faithful. And so Paul begins that to explain what happens. And so he continues in verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the amen. Amen is not a random word we punctuate at the end of prayers. Amen is a declaration. Amen is saying, yes, this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus will do, and I boast in that. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And so here's what Paul is saying. I had every intention on coming back, but my king is Jesus, and my king overruled me. My plans changed because Jesus changed them. Now, he's not blaming Jesus. He's not passing the buck. What he's saying is God is faithful. And no matter how many promises God makes to us, God will fulfill his promise. But Paul is essentially saying, remember, he is king and we're not. And so while Jesus will fulfill every promise he has made to us, he often will do those in a way that defies our plans and our expectations. Honest talk, fam. That's frustrating at times, isn't it? Because we just want to know, right? We just want to have clarity. And the reason why this is so key in Paul's defense, so to speak, is because often that's a filter we place on Jesus. That often we don't like that he overrules our plans and our expectations. Often we don't like that his plan is to keep us in mystery, to simply trust what he is going to do. And so often we want to filter and shrink and bring God down to a different level, to our level, so that he's easier to predict so that he's easier to control, and in a way, the powerful word that I use, so that he is much safer. Because when he overrules us, it's often to lead us to an option we don't consider to be safe, right? 
And again, the Corinthians are coming with a view of Jesus that makes sense to them. He's safe. He's predictable. And again, Paul is pointing to the unfiltered Jesus. Understand the king we serve. He is good. He is faithful. Oh, but he is not safe. I've shared this quote often, but I love that description in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan, the powerful lion that's used to be the analog of Jesus, is described. And it says this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so that is the picture that Paul is painting of the unfiltered Jesus. And then he concludes for our time in verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. Would you underline that? He anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Jesus is God's anointed one. That's what it means to be the Messiah. And so because he is the anointed one through his death and resurrection, we have now been anointed. And so understand, if we have the right view of God, then we understand what he is transforming us into being. Just as Jesus is anointed, we are now anointed through him. And so again, Paul's heart is don't miss out on who Jesus really is because if you do, then you're going to miss out on who you really are, on who God is transforming you to be. And then he closes it by using common financial language that as Christ followers, we have the seal of God's ownership in us, the Holy Spirit, and that it is a deposit for a brand new life. Often our filters of Jesus is because we want to live, quote, comfortably today. Paul is saying, don't get focused on today. Remember that the death and resurrection of Jesus was to give you more than just a new day. It's to give you a new eternity. And don't lose sight of that. And so that's our passage today. Now, there was a lot there. And so what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to do several things. But the very first thing I want to do is I want to make sure we spend a little more time on the core truth, on this root issue that Paul is dealing with. And so there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled The Key to Transformation. And your fill-in is this. Metamorphosis happens through experiencing the unfiltered Jesus. Metamorphosis happens through experiencing the unfiltered Jesus. To live well as Christ's followers, we need to have a clarity of who Jesus is because we are going to be transformed into the image of the Jesus we follow. And so again, Paul's highlight, his charge in this passage is don't let the filters distort the image of Jesus. 
but fixate yourself on the unfiltered Jesus. And when you do, that's when you're going to experience genuine transformation. Now, for many of us, we got to address why these filters got placed in the first place. And the truth of the matter is that for many of us, that was not our intention. We don't wake up on a particular morning and go, you know what I want to do today? I want to distort how I see Jesus. I want to distort the image of Jesus that I follow. I want to create a Jesus in my own image and follow that. For many of us, that's not our intention. But what we don't realize in our blind spots is that gradually this begins to happen. And the key is that when we stop listening and following the leading of the Holy Spirit, then what ends up happening is we start picking up these filters. It begins subtle at first. They start building on each other. And before we know it, we have a completely different Jesus that we're following after from the Jesus that's described in Scripture. Now, when we first gave our lives to Jesus, if you remember that beautiful place of repentance and conversion, you gave your life to Jesus because the filters fell off your eyes, right? Because you saw Jesus for who he really was. But as we continue our journey as Christ followers, we need to be intentional and aggressive of the fact that often we adopt filters and we need to continually go to the Holy Spirit and go, are there any filters that you need to remove from my eyes? Because if not, it's going to create confusion and a lack of clarity in the direction we take. And so there in your note sheet, Michael, this entire series has been pulling up a verse from Paul in the book of Romans, and I have it there for you again. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, experience metamorphosis, by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind is key, because look at the order of events. When our mind, the way we think, and therefore the way we act is transformed, what happens next? Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. In other words, then you will be able to see Jesus as he really is. The unfiltered Jesus, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I love how Michael has been saying this. Why do we as people need regular renewal? Why do I as Dre need regular renewal? Because I'm often wrong in a bunch of areas. But for our purposes today, I need regular renewal as much as anyone else because often I can see Jesus through filters. And again, when I do, it creates confusion that keeps me from missing out on God's epic vision in our lives. And so let me illustrate it this way. Um, many of you know, if you've been at Rocky Peak and heard me teach, that I'm a movie guy. I really, really enjoy movies. And so have you ever heard someone explain the plot of a movie that you were familiar with and they completely butchered it? <laughs> have you ever heard somebody explain the plot of a movie and in essence they explained a completely different movie? They weren't even close and you wonder how in the world did you get there? Honest talk, are you that person? Are you that person that does that? So that creates confusion, right? If you haven't seen the movie they're describing, you would go, okay, that's what that movie's about. Let me continue to further this illustration. Can you throw that up there? So 
Many of you know, one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite sagas of all time is the Star Wars saga. And so this is the poster for A New Hope, the original 1977, the very first movie. And so if I were to describe, if somebody asked me, what is this movie about? Now, parameters, not describing the whole saga. There's nine movies and add-ons just describing this movie. I would probably say something along the lines that it follows a young hero named Luke Skywalker who discovers more of his identity and destiny as he takes his place alongside the rebellion against an oppressive evil empire. Now, bottom line, that's a very basic way, but you understand, those of you that know the movie, that's pretty much what the movie is about, right? Now imagine if somebody were to say, well, what is this movie about? And they gave you a description that was nowhere near close. Imagine they said, oh, Star Wars, A New Help? Oh yeah, that's easy. That movie's about that kid right there in the middle. His name is Harry Potter. And <laughs> what he is doing is that he is trying to stop the Dark Lord Sauron from getting the one ring of power. And so what Harry Potter does is he fights with this magic called the Force, and he's got this special wand called the lightsaber, and Sauron's got the ring, and it's this huge clash, and there's hobbits and Harrison Ford mixed in all at once. <laughs> now you would sit there and go, that is not at all. But if you don't know, you might be inclined to go, wow, I didn't know that's what Harry Potter was all about. Or what if somebody did a description that wasn't as off, but a little closer? What if somebody said, oh yeah, Star Wars, A New Hope? Oh yeah, the star of that movie, it's about the story of this character named Chewbacca. And Chewbacca is essentially a walking St. Bernard. And it's about his emotional journey as he's trying to stop this evil empire while surrounded with a group of bumbling, idiotic human beings. Now that's closer than the first one, isn't it? It's actually using names and terms from the movie. But those of you that know what the movie, about, movie is about, we would say, well, that is still way off, right? You can pull the image off the screen. But the reason I use this as an illustration is that what Paul is point that Paul is making, not just in this passage, but often throughout his writings, is that for us to experience God's vision in our lives, we need to be very clear as to who Jesus really is. Because one, when it comes to Jesus, close enough is not good enough. And two, the danger in their world and the danger in our world is there is enough confusion when it comes to who Jesus is. And as the church, our call is to know the unfiltered Jesus. Because imagine the danger of somebody coming into Rocky Peak and saying, I don't know Jesus. Can you tell me about Jesus? And they ask a few of us, and every time they ask somebody, they get a radically different answer. This is who Jesus is. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And so the heart of Paul is that to experience true transformation, we need to experience the unfiltered Jesus. And so as you reflect on that, a couple of key questions is, how do you see Jesus? And where does that come from? What is the image of the Jesus that you follow? And where does that image come from?
Now, when I do honest examination of my own life and my own pride and sin, I realize that often I want to dictate to Jesus who he is and what he can and cannot do. And the only way to experience freedom from that, for those filters to be removed, is to allow the king to reveal to me who he really is. And so with that, let's talk about how do we have our eyes opened so that we can follow Paul's charge to experience the unfiltered Jesus. And there in the note sheet, you've got a section titled, Having Our Eyes Open Two Ways. And the first fill-in is this, the unfiltered Jesus is revealed in God's word. The unfiltered Jesus is revealed in God's word. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because we talked about this about two weeks ago, but I want to go back to that. Two weeks ago, Michael asked the question, based on the passage, who is your authority? Who is shaping your worldview? Who or what is responsible for why you think the way you do and why you act the way you do? And ultimately, the point that Michael made out of the passage was that we need to come under the authority of God's word. We need to come under the authority of scripture and why that is so key is that whoever our authority is in life is going to shape how we see Jesus. Whoever our authority is in life is going to shape how we see Jesus and it's so essential that if we want to see the right Jesus, the unfiltered Jesus, that we need to come under the authority of the very voice of God himself, his word. Because the question we should be asking ourselves is, does my image of Jesus match and reflect the Jesus described in the Bible? Now let me dig on that a little bit because there's a lot of us that are common, our, our immediate reaction would be, yes, yes it does, awesome. Joyfully, beautifully, don't make that assumption, look for yourself. Go back to scripture. Go back and look at who Jesus is, what he said, what he did, what his actual character is, because that is who we're supposed to become like, and we need to ask the question regularly, am I becoming more and more like the Jesus described in the Bible? Not the Jesus described by my filters, not the Jesus described by my culture, not the Jesus described by living in the United States, not the Jesus described by my my religious upbringing, but the Jesus described in Scripture. And so practically speaking, I would recommend, if you haven't done that recently, spend some time in one of the four Gospels in the New Testament that talk about, that reveal to us the life and teachings of Jesus himself. I would give you the recommendation that if you're looking for a starting point, start in the Gospel of Matthew the very first book in the second half of our Bible, the New Testament, particularly because I love that Matthew includes the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous message ever given in all of human history. And as you spend some time in the Gospel of Matthew or whichever Gospel the Lord leads you to, begin to ask the question, who does this Gospel reveal Jesus to be and who does this reveal who Jesus wants me to be? 
And as you read through the life of Jesus or listen to the life of Jesus, many of your Bible apps will speak the Bible to you. If you get to a point in which, well, the Gospels are presenting a different Jesus than what I've been picturing or following, good. That's a filter that's ready to come off. And so if you want to experience the unfiltered Jesus, it starts by engaging in God's holy word. Now that's the first way to have our eyes open. The second way, the second fill-in, is that the unfiltered Jesus will radically challenge and change our lives. The unfiltered Jesus will radically challenge and change our lives. And so, a common filter that I often see in what I would call cultural Christianity is that when we give our lives to Jesus, the transformation is that he basically makes us a slightly better person. I've talked about this point before from up here, but we would have this cultural filter that coming to Jesus doesn't really change a whole lot. My life continues on the trajectory. I continue to look like I used to because that makes sense, and slight things change. Now maybe I go to church a couple of weeks out of the month. Maybe I curse a little bit less, and maybe I hang up a cross in my house, you know, as I go in. But often, this filter, this cultural Jesus, is we are looking to follow a Jesus that fits into the already pre-existing rhythms of our life. This is what makes sense to me. And so what we need to understand, the Jesus that Paul keeps pointing to, is that the unfiltered Jesus, coming to Jesus is the beginning of a radically different life. The Jesus is not in the business of making slightly big, better people, but he is in the business of making radically new creations. And so when it comes to Jesus, we know that we're seeing the right Jesus when he challenges everything everything about us. When it comes to Jesus, we know that we are seeing the unfiltered Jesus when he stops agreeing with each and every one of our opinions. When he stops being an add-on and a yes man, and he starts being the contractor that is knocking down the house of our lives and building something new. The unfiltered Jesus is going to take everything about us, how we think and how we act, and take it under renovation. And we need to understand that this is a key filter. I mentioned at the top that there is a lot of similarities between the culture in Corinth at the time and the culture of our lives as well. And again, this cultural Christianity is one of those key similarities that for many of us, and same thing in Corinth, we want Jesus to fit into our rhythms because it makes sense because that's what we've known. It's the safer path. I don't want Jesus to rock the boat too much, but I love something Michael said last week, that the Corinthians and us were thinking more like their culture than they were thinking like Christ. And so God's epic vision for our lives is not to be just Dre 2.0, but to be completely different, not perfect, that's not the bar that's set for us, 
but to be people that are transforming. Because we already live in a culture in which many people with their words say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but rarely do we see people with their actions actually back it up. But the vision of God is to transform a people who say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in his holy word, the Bible, and I'm going to allow my life to be transformed in that way. And there's power in that. I love how it's put there in your note sheet, scholar and missionary, Elliot Clark. We know that the gospel has many powerful effects on our lives, deliverance from sin, communion with saints, and eternal inheritance, but another critical and sometimes forgotten outcome of our conversion and part of the message we proclaim is that we've been transformed out of darkness and into God's glorious light. As such, an integral part of our evangelism is the visible demonstration of our new nature as those walking in light. Gospel declaration is linked to life transformation. How do we know we're encountering the unfiltered Jesus? Because he's calling our lives to become radically different. The unfiltered Jesus is going to rock our boat. The unfiltered Jesus is going to lead us in areas in which we don't feel safe. But that is a good thing because he is presenting us the opportunity to be supernaturally empowered and transformed to resemble him. Again, as I've been saying, is it safe? No. But is he good? Yes. And is where he's called us to be. And so with that, what I want to do the time we have left is I want to talk about three key areas that the Lord challenges us in. And so you've got that section in your note sheet and your first fill-in is this. The first area is in love. The unfiltered Jesus is going to challenge and grow us in how we see, how we experience, and how we express love. And it begins in how we see, experience, the fact that Jesus loves us, that he loves us with a richness we can't comprehend. And one area of challenge is for the Lord to remove the filter from our eyes that Jesus loves the same way that we love. And what I mean by that, as human beings, the honest truth is that our love has limits, doesn't it? Eventually, our love has limits. And often, a filter we place on a cultural Jesus is that he loves as we love. And so if my love has limits, then Jesus' love must have limits. And before we even get into the way we see limitations on people around us, many of us struggle with the fact that I know God loves me in a logical sense, but does he really love me? Because I'm a mess. Many of us go through seasons in which we don't feel like we measure up spiritually, do we? In which we sit there and go, hey, I'm this many years old and I still don't feel that I've got my career in order. I'm this many years old and my expectation of what I would be like, whether it was married or have a family or be living here, hasn't happened and I'm kind of a mess in this area. Many of us would go, hey, I'm going through a really hard time. I'm barely holding it together as a mom or I'm barely 
barely holding it together as a student. I'm barely holding it together in this way. Many of us go around and go, man, in life group, it sounds like everybody is having this spiritual, the Holy Spirit is rocking the shutters of their house, and I don't feel anything right now. And we could go on and on, but many of us would feel that spiritually we don't measure up. And we sit there and go, well, okay, God loves me, but probably not as much as like the really spiritual people, right? And again, why his challenge is an opportunity is that when we place ourselves under the authority of God's word, when we commit ourselves to regularly being in God's word, what we see is that the Bible is a constant reminder. The Bible is a megaphone that when it comes to you, God's love has no limitations. As you sit here this morning, the love that Jesus has for you has absolutely no limitations, no matter your track record, no matter your sin record. In fact, some of you might be sitting here violently opposed to the idea of Jesus, and you're here because you lost a bet. And wherever you're at, Jesus' message through his scripture is that you are not loved any less. And then with that, he then challenges us to express that same type of love to the people around us. And on my own, my love has limits. But empowered by the supernatural Holy Spirit, I can love in a limitless way just as Jesus loves me. And there's a lot of ways in which we see this play out in our lives, but there's one key one I want to reflect on. And I mentioned the Sermon on the Mount in the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about the type of love he empowers us to live, he says something that's very shocking. He says, now love your enemies. Full stop. He doesn't say love your enemies when they have waved the flag of surrender and have stopped attacking you. He doesn't say, love your enemies after you have crushed them into the ground and conquered them. He doesn't say, love your enemies as you and your whole Christian gang has beat them into submission. He says, love your enemies. And again, that's difficult because I would sit there and go, well, that's impossible. And the way that Jesus challenges us is on your own, yes, with me, no. And we think about this and go, man, but who are my enemies? And again, there's different ways to define this, but the way I often start with, my enemies are the people that don't love me. My enemies are the people that attack me. So let's look at one specific, one specific thing happening in our nation today. We are living in a world that is increasingly growing more and more hostile to those that hold on to a Christian faith. We are living in a world where it's becoming harder and harder to hold on to a biblical ethic, to hold on to a biblical worldview. We are living in a world where often you're hearing those voices opposed to faith declare us as their enemies. And one of the biggest mistakes that we as the Christian church in America are doing is that when we are attacked, we are attacking back the same way. We are attacking them back with anger, with violence, with vigor. We have created an us versus them mentality. And for many of us, we justify it through the filters we have placed on Jesus. 
But the unfiltered Jesus calls us to something completely and radically different. He calls us to hold on to biblical truth, but he models for us that we can do that without dehumanizing those that are against us. This challenge of love is to open our eyes to the power of the unfiltered Jesus that rather than expressing ourselves in anger and in hate, we express ourselves in love and compassion. What the Lord does is he removes the filter in our eyes when we begin to understand that his love is limitless and he can empower us to do the same, that no longer is it us versus them, but we realize it's Jesus for all. It's challenging, but it's beautiful. Again, I like how Elliot Clark puts it there in your note sheet. When criticized and scorned, we often respond in kind. That's because the natural inclination of every human heart is to play dodgeball with shame. If we're mocked, then we'll mock back. If we're trolled, then we'll be sure to troll back. Only one better. But Jesus left us a different example. Many times, people won't be compelled to listen to our message on account of sound arguments or persuasive evidence. Instead, their ears will only open when we demonstrate an inexplicable kindness, meekness, and compassion. It's challenging, right? But one thing to know that if my life has become angrier, and more hateful because I became a Christian than I am following the wrong Jesus. And so reflect, is there any area of love in which the unfiltered Jesus is challenging your filters in how you view yourself, in how you receive God's love, and in how you express it to others around you? So that's the first area of challenge. The second one is our priorities. And the unfiltered Jesus will challenge us by asking, is metamorphosis, is listening and following the leading of Jesus a priority in our bucket of good competing priorities, or is it the priority on which we build our lives? And often we get caught up in the hustle and bustle of our lives that we say, yes, Jesus is important when the other important things get done. You know, recently I was having a conversation with somebody who is near and dear to my heart, somebody that I've known my entire life and somebody who does not know Jesus yet. But we have beautiful discussions. And in this discussion, he was open to reading a book I suggested. I gave him a book by Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors, called The Prodigal God. And it was cool what he was saying. He's like, I've never heard it put that following Jesus is not about now I go to church and making small behavioral changes, but following Jesus is supposed to be the foundation on which you build a new life, isn't it? And it was beautiful seeing that reflected. And so what we need the Lord to do is in holiness and in beauty challenge us that he's not meant to be a priority, he's meant to be the priority. I love there in the, from the Sermon on the Mount uh, from Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. 
And so how do we examine this in our own lives? Again, there's many ways, but I think there's one very, very clear way, and that comes down to your own regular rhythms, your own ability to spend daily one-on-one time with Jesus himself. Now, in all the years I've been a Christ follower and all the years I've been involved in church life, often when people say, I haven't been spending regular one-on-one time with Jesus, what's the reason they give? Too busy. I'm just too busy. And so here's the thing to examine. If you are too busy to spend regular one-on-one time with Jesus, your king, then whatever is keeping you from that, the busyness, is your true ultimate priority. If you are too busy to spend regular one-on-one time to experience transformation, then whatever is keeping you from that is your true ultimate priority, is the authority through which you're submitting to. And so that's challenging for a lot of us, isn't it? But again, remember the heart of Jesus. I want you to see me so that you can become like me. That's the second area. And the third area is this, success. And what I mean by that is, for many of us, a confusing question is, how do we know we lived a good life? How can we look back and say, that was a life well lived? And culturally, the answers tend to be a moving target, but it usually involves what we have. Have you ever heard the expression, he who dies with the most toys wins? And so there's people that think you've lived a good life if you've got all the stuff, the cars, the house, the boat. Some people are saying you've lived a good life if you have the correct relationships, a marriage or a family. You live a good life if you've had deep friendships, and those can be all good things, but those answers are exclusionary, aren't they? And so what the Lord challenges us is, what does it mean to live a good life? Well, what Jesus teaches is a life well lived is a life that loves God and loves people. A life that is well lived is a life that loves God and loved people. And what's beautiful about that is that that goalpost is open to all. That that is what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do when we encounter the unfiltered Jesus regardless of where we are. And this is what I love about this, this, the unfiltered Jesus and the truth that he brings. When it comes to finances and resources, whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, little, we are still empowered to love God and love people to live well. Whether we are a new believer, weeks, months, even hours old, whether we have been walking with Jesus beautifully for a length of time, we are all still empowered to love God or love people. Whether we are young in age, whether we are more mature in age, we are still empowered. We have what we need to live well, to love God and to love people. Whether we are in a calm season, whether we are in a season in which life feels we are a mess, we are still empowered equally to love God and love 
love people, whether we are healed and have experienced freedom from hurts and past vices, whether we are hurting and are seeking healing, we are still empowered by the same Holy Spirit to love God and love people. What is beautiful about this new view, this new unfiltered view of success, it has less to do with us, everything to do with Jesus, and he gives us exactly what we need. And so as I wrap everything up, again, the heart of this whole passage has been that metamorphosis happens when we experience the unfiltered Jesus. And so with that, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And we're going to close out our service by singing one last song. And during this time, too, we're going to be uh, receiving our tithes, our gifts, and our offerings. And I asked the worship team specifically to play a song that's familiar for us at Rocky Peak. It's a song called Let There Be Light. And those of you that are familiar with that song, you know that some of the lyrics talk about opening the eyes of the blind, talks about people seeing Jesus as he really is. And one of the most beautiful parts of this song for me is that when I'm out there worshiping with you, I often use that song as a prayer for people in my life that don't know Jesus. And that is a beautiful aspect of this. But the reason I asked them to play this song for us this morning is I want this song to be a prayer for our lives. As we sing this song, as you say, open the eyes of the blind. Let this be your prayer. Jesus, remove any filters I have. As the song says, I want to be desperate to know who you are. Let that be our declaration and prayer that I want to know the unfiltered Jesus. I want to experience the untamed Jesus. I want to be challenged to grow by King Jesus because that is where true metamorphosis happens. And so as we go into this time, Rocky Peak, let this be our declaration and our battle cry. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you truly are, unfiltered, untamed, powerful, and king. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray as we go into this last song, again, as we receive our tithes and our offerings, we thank you for the faithful gifts that fund what you're doing here at Rocky Peak. We thank you for the words we're about to declare in our worship to say Jesus is king, and I want to see more of the unfiltered Jesus. Let this be a time in which we confess there are filters I've been, pla- I've been placing on you. Let this be a time in which we celebrate that the Holy Spirit is breaking those filters, is breaking through our barriers. Let this be a time in which declare that my eyes that couldn't see you now can. And it is the beginning of something beautiful. We love you, Jesus, as we head into this declaration. In your name, everybody said, amen. Let's stand together, Rocky Peak. You know, when I think of the life of the Apostle Paul, when we're first introduced to him in Scripture, he's a man that was absolutely convinced he knew who God was. He was absolutely convinced he knew the right way to follow, what the right way to follow God was. He had a plan and he carried it out zealously. And then he met the unfiltered Jesus and it changed everything. It changed his view of God. It changed his view of love. It changed his view of how to live. It was difficult. It was a journey. It wasn't always safe but it was rich, it was beautiful, and we see this throughout all of his writings. This is who Jesus is. And as Jesus can transform me, think of what he can do in your life as well. 
And so I pray as we leave here, Rocky Peak, that we would listen to the Apostles' Church, that we would be pursuing not a Jesus made of our culture's image, not a Jesus made of our filters, but a Jesus as revealed in Scripture, untamed, powerful, and king, and that through that we would experience true metamorphosis. Amen? If you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, whether you're here in the worship center, whether you're joining us over in the ridge, alongside that wall to my right, your left, are some amazing men and women from our prayer ministry. They would love to be able to cover you and stand with you in prayer. Next week, I really hope you can be here. As Michael continues, as Paul continues to talk about the issue of his travel plans, he's going to focus more on this challenge of love, how the Lord expands our view of it, and particularly how the Lord loves us, even though life is messy and unpredictable at times. So I really hope you can be here to join us. We'll see you then. I love you, Rocky Peak. Mm.